Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Thanks for taking some time to listen today. Uh, very excited to continue our discussion of the Exodus. So we have officially exited Egypt, and now there's not even anyone chasing the Israelites. So good for them. They made it across the Red Sea out of Egypt, though they haven't totally forgotten Egypt, as we'll see in this story. And now they are in the wilderness. Now, um, we know, because we've read the whole story, that they're going to be in the wilderness for a while. Didn't have to be that way. It's how it's going to be. But it didn't have to be that way. Um, but they've got a little bit of a journey from the Egypt area to the Promised Land. So um, there's not a lot out there in terms of, oh, this is a great place to take care of my flock and plant stuff and find water. Um, so this is kind of an area where they're not able to really rely on their agrarian heritage. So they would have been used to being farmers, um, having livestock in their time in Egypt, and they really can't rely on those skills where they are, not only because of the climate and the um, area where they are, but also they're um, pretty much nomadic. So planting uh, crops in a place and then moving on is not going to be super conducive to them having long-term crops. So there's a trust a trust issue here that the Israelites are going to have to work out and God's going to take care of them, but not without some uh, grumbling and complaining as the Israelites are quite famous for. So um, they are about, when we get to uh, Exodus 16, which is where we are at today, um, they are about a month away from Egypt. So they've been traveling for about a month. And uh, remember, as they were um, complaining before they got to the Red Sea, this is kind of when they started. When they see the Egyptians coming, they say, Moses, why did you take us out of Egypt? Were there not enough graves in Egypt for us to die there? Like just super snarky, very, uh, very grumbly, very complainy, very whiny. Um, but they are now a month away from that, and they are, guess what, they're going to start complaining again. So this story that we're going to see um, is about um, the manna, which you've probably heard of, and it's gonna we're going to cover a story where they're also provided with uh, water and also a victory in battle. And we're also going to get kind of a little intro to the Sabbath, so that's where we're at. It's The story is really about how God provides for the Israelites, and that's a way for us to realize how God provides for us as well. So... Like I said, Exodus 16 and 17, we're, we're going to be today, and we will start out reading in verse 2 of chapter 16. It says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when, the when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at, the at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So the Israelites are getting hangry. That's really what we learn from these first few verses. They are hangry. 
Um, that is when you are so hungry that you get angry, which is a pretty easy place to get to, I feel like. I can get very hangry myself. And they go back to their uh, their drama class roots um, where they're doing the monologue of the desperate person in the wilderness. And they say, oh, man, it would have been amazing if the Lord had just killed us in Egypt instead of bringing us out here to kill us. So much drama from this group you, it is unbelievable, but it is believable because we do it too. So they're grumbling. They're like, we used to sit by these meat pots and we ate bread to the full. I mean, you have to think that there's probably some misremembering of some of the aspects of their stay there. I can't imagine that they just were eating meat all the time and feasting every night. And just remember during the day they were enslaved. So even if you had some meat at the end of the day, but still we got a, it's a cost benefit analysis here. So God tells Moses how he's going to provide and gives them some instructions. Um, and then Moses and Aaron kind of go to the people and say, uh, you know that we're just people, right? And we're kind of in the same situation as you. You're not really grumbling us against us. You're grumbling against the Lord himself because we have no power or authority here. So they are grumbling against Yahweh, not really against Moses and Aaron. God's going to provide this awesome miracle. It comes as a result of grumbling, which is kind of a bummer, but God was going to provide for them anyway. Then we, we know that. So, and then this little part in verse four is kind of interesting too. He says that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So remember the law has not been given at this point. Uh, the Mosaic law, that's going to come, uh, I think we're going to talk about it next week. Because uh, Exodus 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments. That's kind of uh, one of the starts of the Mosaic law. So we're going to see that soon, but there's nothing really fundamentally set down, written down for them. So God's kind of communicating. This is like a, an initial test to see if I give them a couple rules, I want to see how they do with them. They're not going to do so great, at least not all of them. Um, and so it's also an introduction, something, and we'll talk about it a little bit more as we come up on it, an introduction to another part of the law that's going to be really important, which is the Sabbath. So um, basically... The people are going to go out, they can gather a day's portion, and God wants to see if they will walk in his law or not. Um, and then Moses and Aaron are saying, hey, God's going to provide for you, and you're going to know that it was him who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So um, scooting on down to verse 13, um, basically they just kind of, the rest of that little bit, they just kind of communicate what has already been communicated to the people, um, and then God promises what is going to come up in verse 13 says this, in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So we get this um, pattern that they're going to start to go in with their nutrition. They are going to have quail in the evenings, and they are going to have this fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, in the morning. So um, this substance, we are we, you're probably um, guessing what it is at this point. It's going to be called manna. And that's going to come out of their response to it in verse 15, this what is it. So like man is the what um, interrogative in Hebrew. And so it's going to become 
mana, or we would say it mana because we are Texans and that's how we say our A's. You'd probably say mana, but we call it mana. That's fine. Not a big deal. But it really just comes from the, and you may have heard this before, just basically it's what is it. Um, so it's not like this is a, a known thing. This is kind of the uh, first uh, advent of mana, if you will. So the way they would eat mana, there were a couple of ways, and we, we see it in a couple of different places. So they could eat it as it is. At the end of 17, we see that it's like a wafer with honey is kind of what it tastes like. So that sounds pretty good. Um, but then it could also be boiled or baked. Um, and we see that in verse 23 um, later down here in this chapter. And we also see in Numbers 11, it's going to mention um, some ways they prepared the manna. So you've probably got like a couple of different ways they're going to eat it, but it is fine for them to um, to eat it just as it is when it comes down. Um, to call it like I, what I read in the commentaries, say it's like flake-like doesn't mean it came down in like tiny little flakes, like it was like red pepper flakes or something like that, but rather like you describe a pie crust as flaky, um, something like that. So it, it does appear it's very thin and fine. So it's not like a big piece of bread. Sometimes I think we imagine like, a piece, I've always imagined kind of a piece of bread, maybe even a flat bread, kind of like the uh, unleavened bread that they ate. It is different than that. Um, but nutritious, delicious, maybe. And then they get quail. So they're, they're pretty well taken care of. Um, they're told to gather just what they need for the day with the manna. Okay, except for the sixth day, we're going to get there. Um, and then they're told anything that you gather up, if you don't eat it, no leftovers, throw it out. Of course, then you get your people who try to keep the leftovers. And guess what? It gets bugs in it and it stinks. So we see that. Um, let's see, where is that one? That's just a little bit later here in the narrative about how they kept it. Yep, down there in verse 20, it talks about that. Moses was mad at them because they did not, again, we were going to see, how good are you at obeying my law, said the Lord. And they said, oh, we're not so great at it, actually. But I think it's in, what's important from this, too, is they're gathering each an omer for each person. So it's kind of like, okay, if you give an adult an omer and a kid an omer, the kid's probably not going to eat all theirs. So the adult might have a little more, the kid might have a little less, whatever. But it's basically the amount that they need for the day. So they are being provided for every morning with this manna, and it's what they need for the day. So it's this really constant, and they can't keep any of it. So it's this really constant reliance on God to provide for them every morning. They wake up once the dew has evaporated and they can see the manna. That's when they're like, okay, he provided again. Um, we, of course, know that that's how he's going to, uh, that he is going to provide for them. But the people, you know, they were just basically going, going day to day waiting for the Lord. So um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. So down as we get to verse 22, we get what they're going to do before the Sabbath, which again, there's no law yet at this point. So Sabbath is not an official institution, but rather this is kind of where we're going to start to learn a little bit more about what God expects of his people on the Sabbath. So verse 22, it says, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So we get the instructions. This is given a a special designation of a Sabbath. Um, The word for uh, Sabbath uh, effectively means um, stoppage. So um, it, of course, is going to come to have a very specific meaning. Um, but that's the idea. There's just stopping, not not doing a lot, just like we see there at the very uh, end portion of that passage is just stay in your place. Um, don't go out of your place. Don't feel like you need to work. So, um, and of course, you get the people who just have to go out and check. I don't, are they going out of greed? Were they not listening? There's always those people, you know, don't we know, don't we all know those people you can give as clear of instructions as you want and they still won't listen. I work with children. That's most of them. So it is what it is. But either way, they disobeyed and God wasn't particularly pleased with how his very easy test was going to see if the people would obey the law and reminds Moses to tell the people, I don't think he's just griping to Moses. I think this, his intention is that he would communicate this to the people, reminding them that he is taking care of them. He's giving them what they need. They do not need to go out and seek out something for themselves. For themselves, He is giving them what they need. But that's what happened. So this is actually um, the first time, to my knowledge, that uh, Sabbath is mentioned really since Genesis when we see that um, the Lord rested on the seventh day. So we we have long looked at that time and by long, like anytime we look back and think about God's institution of the Sabbath with his actual rest, it's, I think, fairly clear that it's meant as symbolic and something for us to emulate not because God got tired. Now, I know he's doing a lot of creating, but also he's God, so he doesn't really need rest. Um, But rather, this is like an example that he gave that for future generations they would adhere to. Now, I I don't think we see really in any sort of institution of this rest until here in Exodus 16. And even so, it's not a full-fledged, fully fleshed out Sabbath. It's really just like stay home and don't gather manna. Um, and then it's going to become, there's going to become more specifics as the law is, uh, further fleshed out. And then also, um, the Pharisees are going to even add stuff to that. So Sabbath is going to get real complicated real quick. Um, by the time Jesus is there, um, something that is very important that, um, is important to Jesus because of how they enforce these kind of man-made Sabbath rules. But that's a story for another day. Um, So they uh, decide they're going to keep some manna also at the end of uh, chapter 16. They keep some manna as a memorial. Um, If you remember from last week, we talked about how they um, had a memorial um, that they they kept for uh, what God had done to provide for them in Egypt, that he had uh, let them escape the Egyptians, this idea of having memorial and having that as a part of our spiritual worship. We talked about that a little bit last week. So they do that here with the manna. That's going to be one of those things that goes in the Ark of the Covenant. So um, that is a very, um, just a very physical, real reminder of how God provides. So God, uh, the with the manna, that's one of the most uh, probably 
noteworthy ways that we we see him provide miraculously, but there's going to be a couple of different ways here in chapter 17 that he's going to provide. Um, in verse 3 of chapter 17, it says this, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Here we go again. To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your staff, or in your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Maribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? All right. Now they're upset. They've got food. They don't have enough water. Why didn't we just die of thirst in Egypt? And they bring the children in and the livestock in. And it's real, real dramatic. Moses is getting frustrated um, here. Um, you can see that. And as he said, what am I going to do with this people? You can imagine why he's trying to get frustrated. Um, and so God, once again, has Moses provide miraculously. God provides miraculously and he uses Moses. Better way of putting it. And God has him strike this rock and water comes out from it. Now, do not get this confused with a different incident where Moses is going to strike a rock and get in big trouble. Okay, that's going to happen later. He's also going to be frustrated then, but God's going to tell him, speak to this rock. And he's going to smack it and he's going to get in big trouble and not get to go to the promised land. I think we'll probably go over that at some point. I have to check. But this is a different story. He was supposed to strike the rock this time. So we were all good on that. So water comes out for all the people. You have to assume the livestock as well. And so Moses clearly still upset about the grumbling. He calls the place testing and quarreling is what it means in, Eng in English. So he names the places after how I'm, I'm not sure if he means the test that came from the Lord that the people failed or how the people tested him and tested the Lord. Um, but we obviously know the quarreling came from the people. So, but again, God provides in the time they needed it. God provides what they need when they needed it with water from that rock. Um, and then he's also going to provide them with some military victory here as we close out 17, looking down at verse 8. It says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people and his people with the sword. So now, uh, this group of people, um, Amalek, the Amalekites is how they'll be uh, referred to later on. Um, and they come up and they attack the Israelites. Now, remember when the Israels left Egypt, they took some stuff from the Egyptians, as God told them to. And some of the things that they took were weapons. Um, they were not at all a trained military. Um, though Joshua apparently early on showed some chops for leading an army. 
And uh, so he does so. And when the people or when Moses has his hands up, they're winning the battle. And when he gets tired and has to put them by his side, they start losing. So kind of a very bizarre thing, especially because Moses is up on a hill and they're not fighting up on a hill. So he's not even on the battlefield, but his arms are making a big difference, which you're like, that sounds really silly if we're thinking naturalistically and you were correct. It does sound very silly. And I think that's kind of the point. So the purpose again is here to show that it is the Lord who is providing. Moses is not on the battlefield. His hands are just up in the air. Perhaps he was waving them like he just didn't care. The text does not tell us for certain. I have to think maybe. And so that's a pretty odd way for, you know, you have to think even the soldiers aren't even like looking at him. It's not even like that could be really encouraging. And is somebody putting their hands up in the air that much more encouraging than them having them by their side? Again, unless he was waving them like he just didn't care, in which case that probably would give him a little extra juice. But you have to think they weren't really looking up at the top of a hill. They were probably like, oh, there's a spear in front of me. I should probably watch out for that. So again, just like, hey, there's magic bread from heaven. Oh, hey, there's magic water from a rock. Hey, this guy puts his hands in the air and you start winning. These all are for the purpose of clearly pointing to Yahweh as the one who is providing for the people of Israel. So they defeat them and uh, they are good to go for now. That's pretty much what the end of 17 is. Um, they do build an altar and they name it... Um, Yahweh Nishi, or Nisi, Yahweh Nisi, it means the Lord is my banner. Um, people, honestly, it, it sounds kind of cool, right? The Lord is my banner. Sometimes people will get tattoos of Yahweh Nisi or put it on a pillow or hang it somewhere just because it sounds pretty cool. When somebody says, what is that? And you're like, the Lord is my banner. And people are like, oh, you're a neat kind of person. So um, if you've ever heard somebody say that before, now you know what it means and where it comes from. But this was, again, another memorial. Like we talked about last week, important that we memorialize the things that God's done. It was important for the people of Israel. It's important for us as well. Um, and that's how we finish this one. So nothing too complicated from this section, though I do think that the the application points uh, for us are, are just really easily taken from the application that was the people of Israel were actually living out. And the really the biggest thing is just the acknowledgement that God is the one who provides for our needs. And also the recognition that sometimes what God provides is just enough. Sometimes what God provides is sufficient, but maybe we wouldn't call it abundant. Maybe it makes us feel um, taken care of, but maybe not comfortable, um, if we can draw that distinction. So, and the thing we have to realize with these things, it's not because God... Um, it's not like he can't provide more. We obviously know he can provide everything. Um, it's not that he's just um, cruel and doesn't want us to have good things. That's not true. What we have to realize, and this again, it comes up with this idea of God's good for us and our good for us. They often do not quite align. What I tell, what I say a lot is if we were choosing for us, we would have all good all the time, all easy all the time. And we would never grow into anything. Um, God's good for us sometimes comes with um, some distress. Thinking about like exercising. Exercise, you maybe you really enjoy it in the moment. For most people, it's kind of something that we do when 
I say we like I am a big exerciser. Don't hear that. But people exercise because it's like, yeah, this is kind of a bummer. I don't necessarily like it, but I know it's good for me. That's basically what um, God is going to lead us through in order to help us rely on him. God wants us to rely on him more than he wants us to be comfortable. I'm going to repeat that. God wants us to rely on him more than he wants us to be comfortable. Now, let's think through what the Israelites were provided while they were in the, in the wilderness. Bread just for the day, counting on some extra for that Sabbath day when there wasn't going to be any bread on the seventh day. We're counting on there's going to be extra for that last day. And that unlike the other days, the bread's going to keep. There's water just when we need it. Victory when we are attacked. So for us, as we, as God's people, seek to be obedient as we seek to just like it talked about uh, God talked about I want to test the people to see if they'll follow my law sometimes we find ourselves in these testing situations where God is is seeing how are we going to react to these difficulties in front of us now drawing a clear distinction God does not tempt us towards sin we know that clearly from scripture that God does not tempt us towards sin but that's not to say that there are not tests in our faith that are for God's purposes Okay, so sometimes testing comes out of sin. That's something that is uh, our own and um, from the enemy, not from God. But there are tests, there are difficulties that come up that are meant to grow our faith. But sometimes we uh, choose self-reliance and self-provision rather than relying on the Lord. But our goal should be that we surrender to God, whether in scarcity or abundance. Our goal should be that whether we are getting just enough bread for the day or we're getting enough bread for the year, that we are fully surrendered to God in that, whether it's in that scarcity or in abundance. And now bread is not really what most of us are after, where we, many of us find our comfort. There's a lot of things we find our comfort in. We may find it in, a, in relationships that are free of conflict and full of uh, life-giving opportunities. We may find it in uh, material possessions, having those creature comforts around us. We may find it in a certain number in our bank account. We may find it in a certain uh, lining up of political policies. Uh, we may find it in a, a job that we really enjoy. There are a lot of things in which we seek abundance. And it's not generally just actual bread, right? The For us, manna is more of a representation of the things we seek. But the reality is that scarcity and those things that we seek comfort and provision in any of those things I mentioned or anything that comes to mind up in your heart, something that you know, if I have this and I feel set when I don't have this, I feel very, very uneasy. Scarcity of any of those things often forces our reliance on God. Okay, so we sometimes get to the place where we're like, all my relationships are full of conflict. I am forced to rely on God. God would rather have us be in that place than in a place where we believe we are providing for ourselves. We're comfortable enough that we feel like we have got it on our own, that we don't need to rely on him. It's honestly learning to rely on God in abundance. That's a, a big learning process and, and it requires a lot of discipline and experience because scarcity where we realize that I can't provide everything for myself. So when we're in those moments, whether we are in scarcity or abundance, think of 
think of some things that make you feel comfortable, make you feel safe. Think about, is this scarce in my life right now? Is this abundant in my life? And out of that scarcity and abundance, how does that lead me to ultimately remind myself that God is the one who provides these things? God is the one who is the person who is always going to come through. The man is always going to fall. The water is going to come from the rock. That's what we have to ask ourselves. So as we look at these Israelites, and we're going to continue to going forward, and we're going to see them be faithless and disobedient and grumbly and complaining, let's not forget that we are not God in the story. We're usually not even Moses and Aaron in the story. We're usually the Israelites in the story. So having that mindset, having that humility among us that we can realize, yep, I see myself in these people but I don't want to because when I see it in somebody else, I don't think it looks so great. Let's spend some time reflecting. What are those things that are so valuable to us? What do I do with scarcity or abundance in those things? And how do either of those lead me to a more full reliance on the Lord?